0: You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Hope you had a fantastic weekend and are looking forward to the week ahead. It is now February and uh, we are very excited to be bringing you some interesting and enlightening content for your tubish fat month. Uh, not only green, we have a variety of different uh, other interesting things that we're going to be talking about. And to start us off, we have with us today author and writer Joel Pollack, who uh, has written a variety of books on politics and in South Africa and in the United States, uh, as well as uh, some some novels involving South Africa. But he has a very special project, which he's been working on, and which he's going to be out in South Africa for. It's a new book called Rhoda. Joel, thank you for joining us on the new Blue Review, and welcome to Chai FM again.
1: Great to be here, great to be back, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about Rhoda and about the book.
0: Yeah, so for people who might not be aware, perhaps you can give us a little bit of background about where Rhoda came from and what was her family background, uh, which I think to some extent, maybe to a very large extent, actually helped to inform her outlook, and particularly anti-apartheid activism.
1: Rhoda was born in District 6, and she was the third child of a family that eventually grew to nine children. After four children were born, her parents, who worked in the church, moved to the suburb of Mowbray, and her father had a job, in addition to his church, working for the municipality as head of the municipal wash house in Mowbray. This was a place people could come and do their laundry in the days before people had washing machines in their homes and things like that. And they lived there until 1970 when the local MP from the National Party noticed Rhoda's brothers playing soccer with the white boys from down the street and he became very upset about it and Mowbray was declared a white area. So the Kadali family was forcibly removed from Mowbray in 1971 and Rhoda went through all of that while she was attending high school. She then went on to study at University of the Western Cape during a time when the students there, who were classified as so-called colored, began to question the role of the university in the apartheid system, in the philosophy of separate development. And UWC became, over the next 10 to 20 years, the epicenter of political activism against apartheid in the Western Cape. And she was there for all of that. But In addition to struggling against racial discrimination and segregation and apartheid laws, Rhoda also began to challenge the anti-apartheid movement itself to respect and uphold women's rights. And she refused to accept that women's rights had to wait for questions of race to be resolved. She felt that the movement against apartheid should exemplify the values of equality toward women as well. And she became a leading feminist within the anti-apartheid movement. She established the Gender Equity Unit at UWC. She studied overseas and received her MA in Social Studies and International Development at the Institute for Social Studies in The Hague. And she came back to South Africa. And that experience overseas gave her the expertise to be a leader, not just in terms of political activism but in terms of
0: administration and so when nelson mandela was elected before we get before we get there i i I think that her her role in in post-apartheid is extremely interesting and important i want to focus on it but just her anti-apartheid activism what was the reaction of the nationalist government to this activism and, and, and work that she was engaged in the
1: context in which she was involved was an academic one and at the time she was active UWC really was a battleground between the apartheid government and the student activists, then the United Democratic Front, which was aligned with the ANC. And the work she was doing didn't run up against the government itself directly. But within the context of UWC, it was part of a much broader battle. And Rhoda found it a huge challenge to do her academic work and to do her feminist work and all the other things she was doing while this was going on. It was actually severely disruptive. Her direct interactions with the apartheid government, once she had, of course, she had this experience of forced removal as a teenager, but but after that, took place in the mid-1980s when she was married. She got married to Richard Bertelsmann, who is translator. He's now retired, but he was born to a German family in Namibia. They moved to South Africa, and he was white. He was one of the white lecturers at UWC, and Rhoda initially had no interest at all in dating someone white, but she came to know him, and they began a romance, and they left the country to get married because it was illegal in South Africa in the early 1980s for people in different racial groups to get married. So they were married in Namibia and Southwest Africa, Namibia, and they came back to South Africa, and after that, they were monitored by the police. They were questioned by the police. The police would park their cars outside the house and conduct surveillance on Rhoda and Richard. So in that sense, she had direct confrontations with the apartheid state and its racial segregation laws, though not necessarily through activism on campus. The the activism she did on campus really was about challenging within the academy at at the time when the academy had decided that it was anti-apartheid.
0: And also challenging the anti-apartheid movement itself. Yeah, let me ask you about that, because I, mean, I think that's very interesting. Given South Africa has this enormous problem with gender-based violence and uh, and still patriarchal issues that that affect women today, it, it's interesting that that within a sort of liberation movement that this was still an issue. Could could you expand on that a little bit and tell us what she did to to expand the role of feminism within within the anti-apartheid movement?
1: Well, there were many things. So, first of all, there were protests that women organized themselves within the academy. So, on the campus of UWC, which saw itself very much by the late 1980s as part of the anti-apartheid movement, they organized protests against the unequal treatment of women, not just by comrades in the struggle, but also by the university itself. So, they had protests of the same kind that the anti-apartheid movement itself was staging against racial segregation. They they protested against gender discrimination and sexual discrimination and sexism and so forth. But she also fought to challenge prevailing attitudes among her peers and her colleagues, many of whom were very active in the anti apartheid movement. She would hold provocative lectures on campus. She would hold seminars about women's issues. She brought readings and scholarship about women's studies Onto campus and she held education sessions where women who had experienced discrimination and sexism and sexual violence would come forward and would share their experiences and find one another. So she created a network of politically active intellectual and activist women who found a lot of strength through Rhoda and through the knowledge and the activism that she was bringing into the movement, there was a seminar she conducted at UCT in 1987, I believe, at which Rhoda recalled that many women who had been living secretly as lesbians came forward for the first time and said that they had the courage to identify themselves for the first time after participating in Rhoda's lectures. So, It wasn't just about confrontation with authority, although there was some of that. It was also about building an internal capacity for dialogue, about articulating certain ideas and creating an environment where these issues could be raised. And I think that that experience is what Rhoda treasured the most about having been in the anti-apartheid struggle. Many people looking back on history not just in South Africa, but in the United States, focus on confrontations between demonstrators, protesters, and so on, and the government that they were trying to change. We do the same here in the United States with regard to the civil rights movement. Focus on the marches, the policemen beating peaceful protesters and things like that. Creates lasting value. Also, the internal institutional capacity that these movements for change can build. And if you don't build that capacity, then the movement sort of dies. It just withers and dies.
0: Which I think is a a very good point and a very good place to then think about what she started doing after apartheid, because uh, with the new dispensation, she actually got very directly involved exactly with this capacity building that you're talking about.
1: Right. So in the new dispensation, Nelson Mandela nominated Rhoda to be on the new South African Human Rights Commission. That was to be a body organized under Chapter 9 of the new constitution to monitor the new government's compliance with its own ideals and with the new civil rights of the South African Constitution. And Nelson Mandela pointed Rhoda partly because of her achievements for women within the anti-apartheid movement and her establishment of the gender equity unit at the University of Western Cape. So Rhoda worked on the Human Rights Commission from 1995 through 1997. And in that capacity, she conducted investigations into the prison system into the police. She took up individual complaints from members of the public. She opened a separate office in the Western Cape. The main body of the Human Rights Commission was located in Johannesburg, but Rhoda said, no, she wants a regional office in the Western Cape. And she made it possible for members of the public to bring complaints directly to her office. So Rhoda became The public face of the Human Rights Commission, even though she wasn't the president of the Human Rights Commission or the chairperson of the Human Rights Commission, she became the public face because she was accessible to the public. And so people would phone her or fax her or send her emails about their experiences. They would write letters. They would talk about the human rights abuses they were experiencing. And Rhoda's job and the job of her office was to evaluate these and decide whether they were legitimate, find some way to pass the complaints on to the appropriate department, or to mediate between South Africans on some of these issues, and in some cases, to go to court. Rhoda took up many cases that were very prominent, including cases, for example, where a dispatch operator on the emergency services hotline, I believe it's 10111 now in South Africa, used racial and racist language to respond to an emergency call from the public. And so Rhoda took that case up with the emergency services in Cape Town. And she took up other cases, for example, when a Jewish family had their house bombed in the late 1990s in a period of intense anti-Israel activism and the rise of a radical Islamic presence in the Western Cape. Rhoda spoke out against anti-Semitism and political violence. She warned that some of the anti-Israel protests were becoming anti-Semitic, and this is all in the late 1990s, early 2000s. But okay, she okay, resigned. Okay, we'll come uh, that.
0: talking today to uh, Joel Pollack. He is an author and a writer, and he's joining us today about his new book called uh, Comrade Kadali, You Are Out of Order, uh, and it is about the life and times of Rhoda Kadali. We'll be back just after this. You're talking to, you're listening, rather, to 101.9 Chaifem, and I'm talking today to Joel Pollack. He's a writer and an author uh, with a new book out uh, called "Comrade Kadali, You Are Out of Order," and uh, Joel, a little bit before the break, we were talking about her role on on the Human Rights Commission, which is is absolutely fascinating. And you started talking about the Jewish element to it, which we're definitely going to cover in this discussion. But but it wasn't a completely happy experience. Uh, she eventually decided that she didn't want to be on the Human Rights Commission, uh, w- which is interesting. for for a number of reasons. Perhaps you can can tell us a bit more about that. When Rhoda was on the Human Rights Commission, she had great hopes
1: that it could help create a culture of human rights in South Africa and help the government promote not just the traditional civil liberties of freedom of speech and freedom of religious expression, freedom of assembly, but also the socioeconomic rights of the new constitution, which were controversial when they were adopted because it's very difficult to defend those rights if the government and the economy do not yet have the capacity to provide those rights. That became a subject of many constitutional court cases, but Rhoda wanted to see the government at least take up those issues in a serious way. She resigned in 1997 and left at the end of the year because she felt that the Human Rights Commission wasn't taking up those socioeconomic rights in a serious way. She felt that it wasn't investigating issues that the ruling party had no interest in dealing with. And she felt it was generally moribund, more concerned with, office furniture, than concerned with human rights. So she left. And a short time afterward, with some help from private donations, she established the Impumalelo Awards Trust, which rewarded the best public-private partnerships in social development throughout South Africa in a variety of policy areas. But it was aimed at promoting those socioeconomic rights by recognizing excellence in service delivery where the government from whatever party and at whatever level had formed partnerships with private or non-profit organizations to deliver services to people on every issue from environmental quality to policing and so forth. So that was a tremendous success. Rhoda was able to raise a lot of money for that and to distribute money to the successful projects. More important than the money they received was the recognition they received because that allowed them to raise money on their own. And it was Rhoda's idea that The best practices that she and her team of researchers at Pumalelo would discover could be publicized and replicated throughout South Africa. So the idea was to take projects that worked in one little corner of the country and give them to the government as examples to follow and then allow the government to encourage similar projects
0: throughout the system. Fascinating. Now, now Joel, tell us a little bit about, let's let's talk about the Israel element because, and the Jewish element, because Rhoda, uh, was really in a, in a country that let's say lacks for very strong pro Israel voices. She was quite outspoken. Of course, she, she she's not Jewish, um, and and that and and part of the anti apartheid movement, which made it even more unusual. And wrote, I have to say, probably the one of the best essays that I've ever read on the use of the apartheid analogy and why South Africans sort of were engaged with it. Uh, it, it was a very controversial thing to do. And I'm just interested, from your perspective, is uh, why was she so passionate about this particular issue?
1: As I mentioned earlier, Rhoda took an interest in fighting anti-Semitism when she was on the Human Rights Council. Noted the vulnerability of South African Jews who are small minority, very active and visible minority, but nevertheless a very small minority of the South African population. And she became concerned that the anti-Israel rhetoric that was emerging in the late 1990s was bleeding over into anti-Semitism and at times violent anti-Semitism. Then, as the Second Intifada unfolded, Rhoda regarded with skepticism the general movement on the South African left, including the government in this case, to... Support the Palestinians and oppose Israel more vociferously. When Ronnie Casrals, who I wrote a book about several years ago, circulated a petition among South African Jews trying to encourage them to oppose the Israeli government and oppose Israel in this conflict, Rhoda dismissed it and said, this is simply politics. This has nothing to do with the Middle East, with solving problems. She regarded it as similar to the Home for All campaign, which was a similar petition that was circulated among some elite white South Africans who wanted to express some kind of public apology for apartheid. Rhoda's attitude was, five or six years into the new democratic system, we have to stop dredging up the past, and it's time to move forward and for the black majority that now governs in South Africa to start providing For the public services that people voted to receive. And she just thought all this other stuff was a distraction. It was a distraction that allowed the ruling party to manipulate social divisions, to remain in power, and she had no interest in it. She became more outspoken later on as the ANC became more and more friendly towards not just Palestinians, but Palestinian terror organizations in particular, like Hamas and so forth. Rhoda spoke out in defense of Israel. She went to Israel. She visited with. A South African delegation. She educated herself about the country and its history. She came to know me as well. And I didn't tell her to have one view or another. She had a natural inclination, I think, to view the Palestinian claims with some skepticism and to connect with the people of Israel. I once asked her why she felt pro Israel. And she said, well, my father, who was a pastor, Pastor Fener Kadali in, in Cape Town, in Cape Town city mission, She used to tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. To some extent, it came from her Christian upbringing, but I think also it emerged from her experience in the struggle and her frustration with the new South African government, because she felt that the Palestinians were not learning the positive lessons of the struggle against apartheid, such as laying down weapons once negotiations had begun, but they were also copying some of the worst behaviors, such as the continual attachment to struggle and revolution and incendiary rhetoric and division, rather than building institutions, building up a state, taking positive steps to improve the lives of their own people. And she developed a kind of impatience, I think, with the Palestinians. The Palestinians could not, she felt, rely on the world to solve their problems for them. They had to build their own state. They had to take steps in the right direction. She didn't see them doing that. Rhoda really cared about building institutions and building the capacity of a society to develop itself. She wanted to encourage that in South Africa, and the Palestinians just seemed to have no interest in it, whereas in Israel she saw that there was a constant interest in improving Israeli society. Yes, there were problems, but there was also an internal critique. There was democracy Arabs had the vote, there was no segregation between Jews and Arabs, and Israel was intensely self-critical and able to respond to some of these problems. Not all, because Israel is not the only party here. The Palestinians also are responsible for perpetuating the conflict, and Rhoda understood that in many cases the Palestinians were perpetuating it rather than talking about peace. So Rhoda began to move more forcefully in a pro-Israel direction, and then I think the attacks that started to come Attacking her, not just for her views on Israel, but attacking her bona fides, basically saying that she had been influenced by me, by her son-in-law. I later married Rhoda's daughter. So they would attack her by saying that I had somehow influenced her. What was fascinating in researching this biography is to discover that Rhoda had these feelings long before she even met me. (laughs) Rhoda had these views before she knew me. And even going back further than that, Not just her father, who prayed for the peace of Jerusalem, but her grandfather, Clemens Kadali, who was the first black trade unionist in South Africa. He spoke out against anti-Semitism in the 1930s when it was unfashionable to do so. And the Holocaust hadn't happened yet. So people didn't know where all of this anti-Semitism, both on the right and the left, was going. Clemens Kadali spoke out against anti-Semitism within the trade union movement. There's this moral streak that runs in the Kadali family. And Rhoda seems to have picked that up
0: now joel her, her unique political insights and, and sort of let's say uh, not thinking within the box of the South African political landscape also lent her ability to see things in other parts of the world like israel uh, but and, and take controversial views and and she certainly even managed to do that in in an American context because unlike many other uh, commentators, she was actually able to see the rise of Trump and understand that it was coming way before that was a fashionable thing to do uh, so just and again paid I think quite a heavy public price for 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 having s- said some things like this, so I was wondering what what your view is, is on on her understanding of American politics well,
1: Rhoda had a really intimate knowledge of American politics going back decades. She traveled to the United States several times. She also had many connections with people in policy circles in the United States through her involvement with the Ash Institute at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Most of the people Rhoda knew were in the orbit, you could say, of the Clintons and the Democratic Party, who were very involved in some of the international efforts that people like George Soros were involved with. So she had an intimate familiarity with American politics. And I think some sympathy toward what you might call Clinton Democrats, kind of moderate centrist Democrat who was is pro-individual liberty and also pro-free markets, pro some kind of social safety net to provide health care and poverty relief, but also in favor of creating a friendly market for investment, keeping taxes low, keeping regulations light. That was the sort of Clinton consensus of the 1990s. And Rhoda visited the United States in that time. She visited many times after that. But over the years, and especially with the rise of the Obama presidency, Rhoda began to regard the American political system with some skepticism because she felt that the uh, group of insiders, many of whom had actually come from that Clintonian orbit, had, in a sense, hijacked American democracy, not just financially, but simply through their monopoly of policy making, their influence in the media, there developed a kind of oligarchy in Washington. And Rhoda saw that expressed particularly in the Obama presidency. You know, Obama came from outside Washington. He came from Chicago, he was an outsider. Trump was also later an outsider. But while Obama spoke about reforming Washington, He didn't really have the experience running large organizations. He didn't have the independence to avoid the influence of Washington insiders who soon filled his administration. And ultimately, I think he didn't have the energy. Obama was notorious for not working particularly hard. He believed that his historic achievement as the country's first black president was enough almost to encourage other people to improve their behavior and to and to do what was necessary for the country. And it was an historic achievement, but it wasn't enough. And the reformist impulse that he brought with him soon fizzled out. And instead, we saw many of the old usual suspects who had populated previous administrations coming in, many of the old donors. Much of the Obama economic expansion went to Wall Street, not to Main Street. And so there was this kind of resentment that built up among the American populace toward Washington, and not just about Obama and the Democrats, but also about Republicans and political institutions in general. When Trump came down the escalator at Trump Tower in June 2015, Rhoda saw his entry into the race as a breath of fresh air. She believed that Donald Trump was a genuine outsider with independent money, with business experience, who could come in and clean out Washington. She used a South African term that I always have to translate for Americans. But she said that he was the scully Americans needed, that he was a kind of gangster who could move in and get rid of some of the corruption, some of the special interests that had become entrenched. And he did that to some extent. He didn't succeed fully because he had a very small crew of supporters who were loyal to him. He had to rely for governance on many of the same people he was promising to get rid of. He ran into some of the same problems that Obama had, which is that Washington is simply so big and so powerful that it's very difficult for an outsider to come in and simply overthrow all the existing systems of power and corruption and so forth. But he did overturn many of the old orthodoxies. And, for example, Trump didn't go to war in four years. He was the first president in several terms, going back to... Reagan, the first Bush, Clinton, regardless of party, they got involved in overseas wars. Trump didn't. And yet Trump did carry out very successful anti-terrorism operations. He conducted negotiations from a very favorable position of strength. He boosted the American military. So he wasn't a pacifist, but he was simply better at using diplomacy and perhaps the threat of war to avoid actual conflict. So That was one way. There were many other ways. Economically as well, he accelerated economic growth in a way that most analysts didn't anticipate, couldn't predict, helped bring about peace between Israel and several of its Arab neighbors, not by pressuring Israel, but rather the opposite, by supporting Israel, defying the conventional wisdom, even in Washington. You know, Washington is more pro-Israel than Pretoria, but the foreign policy establishment in Washington is still somewhat pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel. And Mm -hmm. Trump basically pushed them aside and achieved more for peace in his four years than they had done in 40
0: years. So we're talking to Joel Pollack today. He is an author and writer with a new book out called uh, Roda. Comrade Kadadi, you are out of order. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 High FM. Talking today to Joel Pollack about his book about the life and times of Rhoda Kadati. Now, Joel, I'm interested in your view, you know, you, you look at the experience of Rhoda Kadati, particularly as an academic on a campus, and you see the positive impact that she made in the world. Now, uh, you uh, you write a, a lot about different things, and that includes how uh, perhaps the academy has not been in the last, say, 10 years really a site of helpful and useful change in the world, and, and maybe it's actually been a force for regression in some respects. What what kind of lessons do you think we can learn from Rhoda about making change in a place like the Academy?
1: Well, Rhoda gave up on the Academy. She was a member of the UCT Council and also the Council of Stellenbosch University, and she resigned from both because she was disgusted at what she believed was the attempt by both universities to increase the representation of black lecturers and professors and so forth at the expense of the quality of the lecturers. She believed that in many cases, these universities were promoting underqualified black professors and not giving jobs to professors who were very qualified simply because they happened to be white. I don't know how many other examples there are in the entire world where racial issues or ethnic issues are at stake of a person from a minority group or let's say, a person entitled to the benefits of affirmative action, such as Rhoda, a black woman in this case. I don't know how many examples there are of a black woman resigning in protest at discrimination against a white man, but Rhoda did it twice. She resigned in protest because she felt that the universities were getting rid of merit as the qualification for hiring and for admissions simply so that they could fit the ANC's demographic ideological model of representativity, where every institution has to reflect the demographics of the country as a whole, where you disregard the effects of individual choice, cultural interest in certain subjects and not others, and you simply try to make everything look like the country as a whole. Rhoda, of course, was not opposed to hiring black faculty and not opposed to admitting black students and so forth.
0: Sure, uh Rhoda has this long history uh, of of taking controversial positions Uh, The title of your book, I think, suggests that she may even have had a fairly sharp tongue if you got on the wrong side of (laughs) her. certainly did. And yet, when she died, there was this outpouring of commemoration and memorialization of her life from people who would precisely be the kind of wokey left-wingers that you were talking about uh, at the university university level and in the media and the government and and whatever – uh, how did she manage to do this? Because in such a we have a very polarized society, and yet you had these people speaking up admirably about about Rhoda, despite the fact that I think they probably had nothing in common with her. Uh, what do you attribute that to in terms of her character?
1: Well, it's important to point out that some of the outpouring of sympathy was tinged with a little bit of criticism. Marion Tam, who's a left-wing journalist who was very close to Rhoda for some time, wrote a very nice obituary, probably the best one that was written, I think. But she had a paragraph where she confessed that she didn't understand Rhoda's pro-Israel views and her pro-Trump views. And it really complicated their relationship as well. So the left talked about Rhoda in a glowing way after she died because she did inspire many left-wing thinkers and feminists and so forth. She had left a huge impression on South African journalism, on the academy, And everybody respected her courage. Even if you disagreed with her, you had to agree that she had a great deal of courage. She was one of the only people speaking out against the ANC's policies on AIDS in Zimbabwe in the early 2000s when there was not one ANC member of parliament who would do so. And that took courage. People were afraid of retaliation by the ruling party. So there was a respect for her. And I think that respect transcended politics. But there were people who took pot shots at her After she passed away, one was Barney Pitiana, who was the former chair of the Human Rights Commission with her. And I I responded to his essay. He made a lot of factually incorrect claims about her and so forth. He really seemed to have some scores to settle because she had criticized his administration of the Human Rights Commission when she resigned 20 years before, you know, 25 years ago. And he decided to try to settle some scores. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there was a little bit of that. And, And I think that Rhoda did suffer a sense of isolation from some of her former friends and comrades because as liberal as some of them might have been, they could not see past their dislike of Israel in some cases and for many of them their visceral hatred of Donald Trump, which I think was heavily influenced by the American media, which projected their own hatred not just within the American conversation, but also worldwide. CNN in particular, which is a worldwide brand, an American flagship, everybody recognizes CNN, they broadcast internationally, it's available in hundreds of countries and so forth. They took such a negative line toward Trump that if you only had CNN as your news source about the United States, and you lived outside the United States, you would not be aware that anybody in the country actually supported Trump. So I think that there's some Issue there with the sheer bias of the American media that reaches the outside world. And it took a lot of care and thinking for some of her critics to wrestle with and, in some cases, understand her support
0: for Trump. But now, really, yeah, um, go ahead. Yeah, so, so uh, we're, we're sort of starting to run a little bit low on time, which is a pity because I think a lot of else I'd like to ask. But you are going to be in the country, or you are in the country uh, over a certain period. and uh, and you're going to be promoting the book. Uh, what can you tell us about if people want to s- uh, speak to you, see about the book? Uh, how can they do it? How can they do that?
1: We are having a book launch at Exclusive Books on the 9th of February in Rosebank in Johannesburg at 6 o'clock in the evening. That's Exclusive Books in Rosebank, 9th of February. And then on the 14th of February, I'm speaking at the Jacob Gitlin Library at the South African Jewish Museum. And the 15th of February, I will be doing another book launch at Exclusive Books in Canal Walk in Cape Town at 6 o'clock p.m. The Jacob Gitlin lecture, I believe, is 6.30 p.m. on the 14th of February, and there will be some refreshments and so forth after that. And then on the 15th, the Cape Town launch at Exclusive Books. On the 9th of February in Rosebank, Gareth Cliff will be leading the discussion, and on the 15th of February in Canal Walk in Cape Town, Helen Zilla will be leading the discussion. So I really hope people can come out to those events because there will be many like-minded, interested people. You may not agree about South African politics or about Rhoda, but I think some of the more interesting and daring and courageous people in South African intellectual life will show up. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing so many of them
0: again. Well, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Joel Pollack, author of... Uh Rhoda, Comrade Kadali, you are out of order. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the, the program today. And uh, best of luck uh, with uh, promoting the book. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you again, Benji. And, you know, maybe
1: we can meet in person if you're able to come out to one of the book launch events.
0: Yeah, that would be absolutely fantastic. I'd love to do that. Uh, Joel Pollack speaking to us on 101.9 one point nine I am Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review.